0: That first pair I actually took I I ended up bringing that pair uh that season we went to Haynes with Matchstick Productions in February we went for like this really early season trip which was it's pretty uncommon to do that but uh we ended up getting some luck with the conditions and stuff and I I skied that entire trip on these skis that I had just built you know a month and a half previously and uh or two months previously to that and it was just like the the experience of like really charging these lines on skis that I had built was uh, super addictive, <laughs> and from that point on, I just that's all I wanted to do was build build skis and take them and ski on them. Welcome to the Blister Podcast,
1: a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Eric Hurlifson, one of the best big mountain skiers of all time. And when it comes to skiing pillows, Hoji is pretty much in a league of his own. In the show notes to this podcast, we've included some of our favorite segments of his. And you can catch Eric skiing more pillow lines in the new Matchstick Productions release that's called Drop Everything. But in addition to being a grand master of big mountain skiing, Eric is also known for being one of the master tinkerers in the ski industry, and someone who absolutely obsesses over ski, boot, and binding design. And given that we just published this past week our full review of the Forefront Raven, a ski designed by Hoji, we figured this would be a good time to talk to Eric about the Raven and its relatives, the Renegade and the Hoji, and the ski that really started it all, the EHP. Eric and I had a great conversation yesterday, and we actually ended up talking for almost four hours. So what we've decided to do is to, yes, edit our conversation down quite a bit, and then break that conversation into two separate podcasts. So in today's episode, if you want to hear Hoji talk about ski design in general and the evolution of his Renegade, Hoji, and Raven in particular, listen to the beginning of this conversation. And if you would rather just listen to Hoji talk about the similarities and differences of skiing spines and skiing pillows, plus get his thoughts on previous Blister Podcast guest, Sage Catabriga Alosa skiing spines, then check your phone or the show notes to this episode on the Blister website for the relevant timestamps. But the truth is that if you truly love skiing, you're going to want to listen to all of this. And then in our upcoming Part 2 podcast, Eric and I will discuss ski boots, the boot that Hurlifson has been working on relentlessly for years now, and we'll talk about some other stuff inside and outside the world of skiing. Now, before we get to my conversation with Eric, I wanted to let you know that we have been hard at work on the 2017-2018 Blister Winter Buyer's Guide. This will be the third year that we are offering a print edition and digital edition of the guide, and once again, We are confident in saying that this is the most accurate and most useful Buyer's Guide in existence. As in past years, we will be producing a limited number of print editions of the Guide, so to ensure that you get yours, sign up to become a Blister member on the site today, and you will be guaranteed a copy. You'll also be able to take advantage of a number of great exclusive deals for Blister members, and any one of those deals more than pays for the price of the Blister membership. For more details on this, just click become a Blister member on the navigation bar on the website and you can sign up from there. And now let's get to part one of my conversation with the inimitable Eric Jorlifson. Eric, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, and where are you today? Uh, today I'm sitting in my home in beautiful Whistler, British Columbia. Uh, we're having some nice clear weather and uh, kind of we're dealing with a lot of fire, forest fire smoke for last month, but it uh, seems to be clearing up a bit. So hopefully those fires are calming down.
1: Nice. Um, well, I want to just kind of jump in on this stuff. Um, but I figured that since we're going to be talking about uh, the Raven and about the Hoji and about the Renegade, um, in particular here. Um, I wanted to first talk about, or ask you how and when you first got involved with Forefront.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a long time ago now, but, uh, <laughs> uh it all, it all actually really started here in Whistler. Um, I was a young kind of up and coming skier, cutting my teeth, uh, coming from the Canadian Rockies and, uh, by really good fortune, um, ended up meeting Ken Aachenbach, the, uh, founder, owner, operator of Camp of Champions, um, on a ski trip, uh, actually at Mike Wigley's helicopter skiing Hmm. and, uh, kind of got to go out with him a few days. He was shooting a lot of the, the big time snowboarders and skiers at that time, kind of the, the new, the new, uh, jibbing style of skiing, new freestyle, um, and I was this young kid that kind of, through good luck and connections, they they put me in the helicopter with the pros and uh, went out sessioning jumps all day for a couple days and uh, made a good impression. And Ken was one of the photographers. He was shooting stills at that time. And, uh, yeah, just chatting to him uh, throughout the trip, like kind of mentioned like, oh, yeah, I, looking at, at all the footage coming from the, the black home glacier the the camps up there I'd love to get out there and, and come check it out it's like my dream and he's like oh really yeah I, I own camp champions you, you want to come out you can have a, a job a volunteer job digging the jumps and ski as much as you like so uh, of course I was super thrilled with that and jumped on the opportunity and came out that that uh, early summer and that's that's how I Uh, met Matt Sturbins he was another he's a few years older obviously but uh got to know him through our volley jobs as diggers and (laughs) and moving into the the coaching side of things and uh yeah at that time we were all just skiing on whatever we could get our hands on through minimal sponsorship and he he was working with Fisher I believe at the time and he had some some interesting like wider stiff twin tips and they became kind of the talk of the glacier and uh yeah i believe it was the second or maybe even the third summer he showed up with his own skis the the very first msp forefront ski and they were like the the hit on the glacier this stiff wide you know like a true a twin tip built for for people really pushing it pushing their ability levels not just a A soft noodle foam injected ski with a twin tip thrown on it as an afterthought Mm -hmm. um and yeah through through our friendship there he uh I was struggling to get get any traction with my sponsor at the time to get any budget to I was I was getting an opportunity to start filming with uh Matchstick Productions and uh he kindly was like oh yeah you you need some money and let's make it happen boom and (laughs) Hmm there that was the beginning I signed up and got some skis and I mean from the beginning it was uh I was very intrigued by the uh, you know having the prospect of an opportunity to be involved with with what we were actually gonna ski on um even though that that uh opportunity took a few years to to come into fruition um just due to the nature of being busy and young and not having any knowledge, but uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually, uh, I was given the opportunity to start uh, becoming involved with with the ski design. So what
1: what year are we talking about when you first sort of officially come
0: online with forefront? I mean, I yeah, it was pretty much the first year. Is that two thousand two? Oh wow! Yeah, so um yeah it was like really the right right from the get-go and okay um yeah skied on them that summer and then got some pairs in the mail and and started skiing on them and quickly realized that uh the models that they were building were kind of limiting my sort of trend towards more free ride big mountain skiing not just uh hanging out in the parks hitting jumps and building jumps into powder yeah um so eventually i was you know kind of i was that's what that's where the drive came from i was like i need a different tool like these skis are great for what they're meant for but i need a bigger stiffer wider, longer more high speed kind of powder weapon
1: <laughs> yeah
0: if you will and I mean, in those early days, I was uh, at that time. I had a couple pairs of the CMH uh, Vocal Explosive, the Canadian Mountain Holidays helicopter skiing. There, they had a contract with Vocal, and they made this this one of the kind of early, somewhat commercially available fat skis. And it was basically like a super G ski with a 95 mil waist and a big soft tip. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I ended up buying a few pairs of those at their end of the year sale for 150 bucks and, uh, spray painting them and putting forefront all over them and bending the the tails up and mounting them like 10 centimeters forward. (laughs) And, uh, that was kind of the baseline of where the very first, uh, EHP pro model, um, that ski design was developed off of, you know, what I liked about that ski at the time. Yep. And so the EHP,
1: now I'm trying to keep that, just want to make sure I'm keeping the years correct. And, and I want to see how good your memory is too. So, <laughs> that's so, going to
0: be tough. <laughs>
1: so let's see, that's right around when? Uh,
0: I believe that EHP would have been 2005, five, six yeah. season. I mean I'm I'm not good with the, the exact year yeah. dates here. <laughs> um The era and that's, the era of Google has, has killed all of our
1: memories. But uh yeah. yeah, that's about when I was that's when I was thinking. So I think you're mm-hmm, in the right ballpark.
0: Yeah, I started filming with Matchstick uh two thousand three-four and that the first yeah, the first year, the minimal footage I have or had uh, up at Micah heli-skiing, um, I was actually on those those spray-painted vocals. <laughs> nice. And, uh, yeah, then by the next year, it was kind of a tricky situation as a struggling company. Like, I, I was really pushing for the ski, and I did a lot of drawings on graph paper. And, I mean, I didn't even have a, a computer at that time or barely had a cell phone. And um, <laughs> just, just, like, providing the information I could tracing stuff and measuring with like, you know, non-digital calipers and drawing things on on graph paper and communicating with Matt and the the engineer Bob. And eventually that information actually got that ski got sort of positioned with uh, Vincent Dorian, who was one of the founding kind of pros. And obviously at that time, a much bigger name and character in the ski industry. So he kind of, he took like, he would work, he was working on it too. It wasn't that I was being robbed or anything, but he became the, the pro that was associated with that ski, the VCT um, the first year. And then they, was it a year or two later? I, I actually got, he kind of, they, they made two out of the one ski and, and I got the HP, which was like a one ninety three and a one Oh, four waist and super stiff and long and just crazy <laughs> i could never sit on that ski now <laughs> that's good uh, at my the the inspiration for that was uh you know i just kind of got the opportunity to come to whistler start filming with matchstick and uh very uh, another good fortune uh, hugo harrison kind of took me and i was staying on his couch and we you know he started showing me around black home him and his couple of his buddies and they were just charging like the fastest guys on the mountain they would ski all day no brakes lap 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 fairly a time to buckle your boots between runs and they're on you know he was on like a 205 one 100 or something the the those squads the big mm-hmm. the hugo the black and white the hugo harrison pro model and just ripping so i was like i need if if i if i'm gonna have any chance i need a big tool like this and yeah (laughs) so definitely a lot a lot of the inspiration came from uh hugo who obviously is like one of the most influential skiers i would say of of my time just in the way that he really opened up the mountains and how hard you could charge these lines and the precision that he that he approached things at that speed and just his, uh, success level was just unbelievable. And still to this day, you could throw his segments from those early two thousands movies, matchstick movies into, into films and people's jaws would be dropping. And you, you could tell them like this footage is, you know, 15 years old now. <laughs> yeah. Yep.
1: Yeah, for sure. Let's kind of fast forward. I want, we're going to jump now. Um, because, uh, As you know, uh, we just published um, a full review of the of the current uh, Raven um, on Blister. And so it seemed like this was a perfect opportunity to kind of talk about that ski, talk about the Hoji, because I'm getting like a thousand questions about (laughs) Where's the Hoji review? What's up with the Raven versus the Hoji? And then, of course, like, I think the Renegade uh, is relevant here, too, um, because, right, the Renegade was actually the first of those of those three skis that was built.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would uh, the story in my mind exactly is, you know, the Renegade was that was the first real crack like from. Drawing, drawing it on the computer, working with the engineer at that time. I, I, I had gotten a computer and Adobe Illustrator, and was able to. My, my level of communication was improving, and and actually, you know, meeting Bob Boyce, the engineer, and eventually going to Vashon Island where the Forefront Press was at that time, and building, you know, building the very first uh, Renegades. Like it, that was my first real, like hands-on, fully involved ski design from from the initial sketches to the polished design to the to the production of the first um prototype skiable prototypes and the revisions for a few years through that and then all the way till moving the press to salt lake city and going down for many months out of out of those three years and uh helping establish the white room which became the the micro production facility for the renegade which led to the development of the hoji which led to the development of the raven and the the production of the raven was was also done in the uh in the white room so the renegade and raven were were both really like they were the hands-on skis that were produced in salt lake city and the hoji was kind of the bridge between of more of a mainstream an attempt to me like bring that progressive design into more of a daily driver and for seeing the the whole full success of that model uh matt wisely you know managed that production in the elan facility where they could make the the numbers required because the, the white room facility is very very tiny and and limited <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: as how many skis you can build yeah so mm. so is it oh is it
1: correct to sort of look at, you know, we just were talking about the EHP. Am I leaving anything out if we were to sort of go, so there is the EHP and then we're kind of jumping to the renegade. I mean, you had the EHP and you're starting that work on the renegade or was there a ski or a step that I'm leaving out here?
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the EHP kind of, the, this was kind of the learning curve and it wasn't as involved i didn't have the the ability or the the knowledge to to be as hands-on obviously but the hp went through kind of two two bit two steps and the second one was a shorter version with a very symmetrical design and kind of that was where the the pintail the very polished you know gradual rockered pintail shape was developed and that ski really Really changed uh, the way I skied, and the the Renegade was then like, boom, we learned that, and how do we take that and and really perfect it? So, the HP had its place and its two versions, but I feel like the Renegade was really the start of of my experience, um, you know, being totally involved. Yeah. So again,
1: maybe I'm going to stop with the years on this stuff in a little bit, but not <laughs> but not quite yet. So the first Renegade is released something like 2008,
0: 2009. Yeah. It must've been 2008, uh, 2007. I was still filming on the, the second version of the HP yeah. and, uh, yeah, 2008. And the Renegade was, uh, this story was pretty fun. I, I look every time I think about it, I smile. Um, you know, it was kind of right before Christmas and we had finished hundreds of revisions and I had printed out, you know, numerous, Bob, the engineer would send me these plotted, uh, like basically blueprints of the ski uh, in a, in a tube. And I would unroll them and cut them out and then glue, you know, glue them to, to cardboard and cut out the, the profile as well and kind of elevate them and stand on them in my, in my living room and just really trying to like, make as many you know micro adjustments as possible without actually physically building the skis and uh we finally signed off on it and it was okay let's let's go visit bob let's go to Vashon island let's crank out some uh some prototypes and it was really rough and really cold and we're in this uh core factory the ellison core factory and just kind of pushed to the side with this press that was barely working and surprised we really even got uh I think we made six pairs, and maybe two of them were came out glued together well enough um, that we could uh, cut them out and and to get them tuned up and ski ski on them. And mm-hmm. that that first pair I actually took, I I ended up bringing that pair uh, that season. We went to Haynes with Matchstick Productions in February. We went for like this really early season trip, which was. It's pretty uncommon to do that, but uh, we ended up getting some luck with the conditions and stuff. And I I skied that entire trip on these skis that I had just built, you know, a month and a half previously and uh, or two months previously to that. And it was just like the the experience of like really charging these lines on skis that I had built was uh, super addictive. <laughs> hmm. And from that point on, I just that's all I wanted to do was build build skis and take them and ski on them. Yeah, Is it the right way to think about this? Like,
1: did you start with this EHP and then say for the Renegade, there are, say, these two or three primary things that I'd like to tweak and adjust? Or did you think of the Renegade really not with the EHP in mind, but just kind of from a blank slate?
0: Well, no, I, like, this. The second version of the EHP shares some similarities. It was really the tip and tail shape that, that are symmetrically length. They're yeah. both about 30 centimeters and, you know, trying to get the control of the ski more centered under you and standing more in the center of the ski on, on a powder ski. is kind of counterintuitive and, and, uh, went against a lot of, the common philosophies design philosophy of that time mm-hmm. and uh, but i wanted a, a bigger an even better powder weapon and i really wanted to start playing with a uh, fully rocker design mm-hmm. um, and actually the the way this worked out was very it was a fluke in a way because i was actually traveling during a film tour in Norway and I went and met uh, a friend over there who's a ski builder, Andre Halls, and we built a pair of these early renegades and they weren't actually fully rockered, but I, you know, I still have that pair in my closet actually should get them out, but uh, (laughs) they're beautifully made all inlaid wood and a beautiful ski. But uh, yeah, I, I, I was on a train traveling through Norway with my computer out on on my illustrator program and i was really interested in in getting this fully rocker design um kind of started and because of the limitations of illustrator i only had a few radiuses i believe illustrator can only draw like a 10 meter radius or something is the maximum so i had these files from bob the engineer that were dxf files with like line segments of radiuses in the 30s and 20s and i just started playing around and at some point on this train ride i was like huh what if what if the side cut in the and the rocker radius were the same radius shared the same radius and and were the center point was in the same point on that ski in the waist of the ski and just playing around in these very basic 2d drawings and illustrator um i was like that this makes a lot of sense and i could just you know i i really wanted to try it and i i honestly didn't know that it would work or if i would like it but uh that's what we ended up going with and as soon as we really got pressed uh, the second generation of renegades and that, that were actually <laughs> put together properly and and, uh, came out the way we wanted, like taking those skis onto the hard pack snow at Lake Louise, where I grew up skiing in the Rockies that, that November and like really trying to, to carve on man-made snow. And I was just blown away by how easy it was to initiate turns from the ball of your foot on really hard pack snow for such a wide, stiff ski Hmm. and, uh, the edge to edge kind of lateral movement that you got out of this, uh, rocker side cut match design um and that just really is what accelerated like that's that's the highlight of that ski i guess Mm -hmm. and the skis to follow
1: how much change has there been with the renegade since its initial release
0: oh man it's i think for a ski that is still coming out of the same shape molds yep. it's gone under the most of revi- because it's been like six, seven years, yep. right. Of, of production and every year has been different. And the, the newest version it is, yeah, it shares the shape, the outline shape, but everything else is completely different. And I mean, if I went back to those original Renegades, it would be terrible. <laughs> so
1: this is what's interesting to me mm-hmm. because Actually, I think when I started Blister, um, the Renegade was one of the first pairs of skis I bought to just review. We were just, you know, reviewing skis that we were interested in. And um, I got to say, like, I thought that ski, it struck me as a very game on ski, but it also struck me as a ski with like very unforgiving, like not a big sweet spot you can charge it, but like you better not relax. Especially, yes. especially if you're getting into like variable kind of resort snow, um, you know, bumped up variable stuff. So I'm not talking about like clean, nice backcountry pow. But as kind of a as a resort pow day ski, um, and Garrett, I believe we could check this, but Garrett Altman, um And I I think we did kind of a co-review of that ski, or I just gave input into Garrett's review, but I think we had a very similar take on that. Um, And this is going to be, this is one of the things like we, that's the last iteration of the Renegade we've been on was like the first or second year. And then, you know, as, as you know, with the Hoji, um, we only were on that ski. I remember we took it with us to Japan in February, 2012 and What's been interesting and what I want, what I'm very curious to hear you talk about is, as you know, I've just had an extremely positive experience with the, the current iteration of the Raven. And I'm interested in hearing you talk maybe a bit about, you know, why I had such a strong, um, I, got, I clicked with that ski so well, didn't click as well with the early iterations of the Renegade or Hoji. And then you've just got done saying, like, I know, you know, the Renegade you just said has gone through tons of iterations. Does any of this sound surprising to you, given that you just yourself, I think the quote was said, (laughs) you thought one of the early iterations of the Renegade was terrible?
0: (laughs) Uh, Oh, (laughs) yeah. No, it it makes uh, complete sense to me because, I mean, the Raven is a result of everything. All the information to build the Raven came through what we've done with the Renegade and the yeah. Hoji as well. But the Hoji, because it, it's made in a different facility in the Elan factory who make really good, you know, they make wonderful skis for a lot of different companies. And we basically would create the prototypes and the revised prototypes and send them those skis and say, hey, match this. So they're, they're, the control we have of exactly what's going into those skis and everything like that, all the fine tuning is a bit less Mm-hmm. uh dialed let's say but the i'm I'm really happy with the latest uh the latest version of the hoji but yeah the raven the ra- like the raven the way it's made the the way the composites are laid up the the core the sidewalls the the material in the tip that we're using to to dampen it and allow that that tip to you know be a bit more subtle and not just bouncing off of everything like that all came from the six or seven years of Renegade production and development. And I mean, yeah, nothing, the Renegade went from an all maple core with no sidewalls, with minimal tip fill, tip and tail fill, completely just a straight laminated sandwich construction to, you know, the the recent version is like a, a core that's different light, light materials and woods binding retention blocks uh full abs sidewalls and a semi-cap construction with a lot of thought put into the tip uh as far as uh dampening with different materials and and their placement um and a tail block that adds to a lot of the skis durability and usability for certain things so it's and all of that information and all of that learning and fine tuning, like the the ra- or the Raven, sorry, uh, started there. Mm-hmm. And and from the Raven, we've also learned a few things and we played more with lightweight composites and seen the benefits and the downfalls of of doing that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's I, it makes total sense to me because the Raven started at you know kind of at the top of what I would call the Renegade development. So yeah. um and and just to hear about the the 2012 Hoji experience, yeah, like that ski compared to what's being produced now is yes, it sh- it shares the same outline shape, but the the rocker profile and the materials and the um yeah, just the flex there's so many things about it that have changed that I think make that ski a much more fine-tuned and polished product than the, you know, the earlier versions. Hmm. So a question that I've
1: been getting a a ton in the days since I posted my Raven review was people asking basically, so is the, is the Hoji basically just a wider version of the Raven, you know? And I think that people asking that question really are like, wow, um, we like the sound of this Raven, but maybe I want to tour on something just a bit wider. Um, mm-hmm. so do you, in your opinion, would you, would you be like, yeah, think of the Hoji as pretty simply a wider Raven or, or do you actually, cause a little bit sounds like from what you've just said, sounds like you might say, no, think of the renegade as a much wider Raven that maybe those two skis have more in common than the Hoji does. What, what's your opinion on this? How would you,
0: how would you (laughs) suss this out? Yeah, that's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, but no, I, I mean the, the thing that keeps the, the Renegade and Raven tied together is exactly the, the fact that they're made in the same place under the same conditions with similar materials. And, uh, the the Hoji is separated by being built in a, in another facility. My, my dream is that they're all as close to each other as possible, as far as their performance, because I think the, the, the the reason there's three models are for conditions. So the, they aren't all going to be exactly the same if they're made in different places. Um, But You know, the goal was to have the Raven, due to the success and the positive response of the Hoji and our own opinions on it, like, okay, let's make a, a, a ski touring, more ski touring directed version of the Hoji. Because at that time, when we started the development of the Raven, the Hoji was still, you know, I think it was for the 187 was 2200 grams, more or less. Um, and there were things about the tip that I really disliked, how they were performing. And at that time we weren't able to get those changed. So I was like, I want I want a lighter ski that's a bit narrower, more comfortable with for very long spring missions. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going on on some pretty aggressive ski touring trips with the DENAFIT guys and stuff like that. And I was like, I need a forefront ski that allows me to, you know, get out there and go for 3000 meters or 10,000 feet or whatever, however many miles and, and still have legs left. And I don't want to be stepping into my skis at the top of whatever we're on and, and being so limited because a, a lot of, you know, I did some skiing on some of the lightweight stuff and for those trips specifically. And, and it was just terrifying. It was like,
1: yep.
0: I, I really, it was full survival ski mode, and suddenly all my confidence in my abilities to ski however I want on whatever I want was whittled down to like I just have to make it down this without falling and everything is just terrifying.
1: Yeah. But
0: the skis weigh nothing, so I made it up here. So it's yeah, it was kind of like the the Raven was the the result of we need a a really a nice ski touring ski that's still allowed for this kind of modern North American take on, on how you should ski the mountains. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it it is a bit different. Um, and, and the Raven, to be honest, like the first version of the Raven uh, was probably the worst ski out of the series that we're talking about here. Hmm. And I made some terrible mistakes and just said, yes, uh, you know like the, the drive to get it going and, and, and get these skis out um, and maybe for, for my style of skiing and, and certain things I overlooked like these design features that ultimately had negative effects on a lot of people's experiences so we had to take a step back and go back and basically um, revert the design closer to the Hoji with some exceptions, of course. But, uh, it, it was one of those like, Oh, I know how I can make this better and just like say yes and do it. And and we did. And it was like, Nope, not, hmm. not correct. Um, so that was a bit unfortunate. And for me, it was, it was a tricky, it was learning of course. I, I was like, wow, I, I, I actually have to, I have to take a step back here and, and, uh, really, try and understand what I'm doing a bit better. <laughs> well, wait a sec. I'm, I'm really
1: curious about this. So are you saying that the initial Raven, you personally, that ski was dialed in for what you wanted and, and, and how you wanted the ski to perform, but then a lot of the feedback from you know consumers who aren't skiing at as high of a level as you are. Um, And obviously, you you know, skis, if they're going to sell, they're going to need to to appeal to a fairly broad range of skiers and abilities, at least was was it that the first Raven you felt like it was dialed in for you and it just wasn't meeting up with maybe a broader range of skiers or is it that it wasn't even dialed in for you?
0: I mean, I I skied a lot on that kind of the first generation of the Raven and I, I had a great time and I really liked it and it was super quick and nimble. You know, we had this dual side cut and, yeah. and the taper was, was looking back way too aggressive, but I was trying to, to create this uh, flotation in the tip, but not too f- far forward in the tip because I would uh, go against the whole design philosophy that, that the series of skis has. Hmm. And, uh, for me personally, I was able to to ski on it and not. I didn't notice such drastic negative effects. I was like, yeah, it's. I'm, I'm having fun. I'm stomping lines. I'm mm-hmm. filming on it. I did a trip with Matt in in uh, Switzerland after the ISPO trade show, and we got some amazing footage and skied some quite some good lines on that ski. And um, but yeah, I think it was too aggressive. The and it didn't have it wasn't forgiving. It didn't have the same forgiving feel in the front of the ski that the Hoji does. And that's, we had to step back and say, Hey, wait a second. This, this was a mistake. This, yeah, I, I, I thought it was okay, but I was overlooking the negative effects of those design revisions. And we're the, the crazy thing that I've come to know about or learn about ski de- design is it's really like you're these millimeters here and there to the to the outline shape of the ski and the rocker profile like these subtle subtle changes you can barely see them by eye sometimes are kind of what make the biggest difference Hmm. and so it's really easy to draw something on the computer and and overlay it with the other old previous designs and 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 you think you're close enough but actually you're not (laughs) Hmm. yeah so have come to realize that there's these subtle, very minimal changes that you can barely see by eye or even on the computer when you're you're comparing models, outlines, and shapes and these things that that really can make a huge difference in how the ski performs. So, I it's it's kind of a problem that we've come to. I, I feel like with the ski design world is everyone's kind of figured it out like there's a lot of really good skis and you look at the skis now and and the shapes and 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 how they optically look compared to each other and how close they are because we've kind of reached i hate to say it but a bit of a plateau as to what really works in powder snow (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that was one of the actually one of the topics I, I was thinking about here was the uh, I've been interested a little bit in this, you know, des- different design philosophies and, and how things are perceived. And I, I really feel like ski shape is an excellent example of design and how design, like the form follows the function. And throughout my lifetime as a skier, if I, if I even look at the skis I grew up skiing on, they're just like, they look ridiculous. Mm. They're two meters long. They're 60 mils wide. They have no side cut. They've got an inch of camber underneath the foot. They're stiff as a, as a cutting board. And, and at that time, that was like the top, that was the state of the art. And, and you would see, I, I specifically remember probably in the late nineties, uh, you know, the first real powder, these atomic powder pluses, and even the CMH explosives, people kind of bringing those from the heli operations and you would see them and they just look ridiculous. You're like, what, what is this? This is crazy. Like it was never going to work. I would never ski on this. Hmm. And, uh, you hold those skis up to what we're skiing on today. And they're much closer than what we were skiing on back then. And, and everyone in everyone's mind, if you released a, a ski from the nineties and put it on the ski wall, people would just be like, this is the ugliest, like, no, we're, we we would, we would never buy that. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, how almost subconsciously, especially if you're interested in, in the, the equipment or whatever, the, the item that you're buying, you're interested in it, in how it works in a way yeah. it's performance affects you. Like you automatically over time, you just, you can look at something and, and, acknowledge like, Hey, that, that looks good. That looks like it's going to work. Um, so it's kind of an, I I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Hmm. I think
1: the biggest thing for me is like, like, I actually really hate it when people say like, nobody's making a bad ski these days, or nobody's making a bad bike these days or something like to me, that is incredibly lazy. Like, what? that's just a lazy generalization. And to me, while maybe it's the case that there are fewer just absolutely atrocious skis than maybe there used to be, I think the thing for me is that, like, this is maybe – the analogies I tend to think about is, like, for people who really love, say, red wine, you know, like, there are – hundreds and hundreds of different types of wine or coffee, right? There's hundreds of different types. And then not only just are there hundreds of different types of red wine, there's hundreds and hundreds of types of Merlot. And there are different notes here. And, you know, someone can come along and be like, yeah, whatever, just give me something to drink. And in that way you can be like, yeah, whatever, just give me a ski, let's go ski. That's totally fine. But I think that I mean, as somebody, again, who is constantly skiing stuff from different brands, I can assure you these skis are not all the same. You know, <laughs> they are just, uh,
0: right? No, I, I totally agree. And for me, I can generally, I think I can pick up on the imitations, you know, because that's, that's why a company like Forefront exists is because people were tired of you know, being told no and being limited on like what's possible by big companies that weren't flexible or didn't see the potential or didn't do the activities in the same way. And yeah, granted a lot of the you see the ski walls and it's all kind of shifting towards this shape, Hmm. but I can look at a ski personally and say, well, they, they were close, but that's not going to work. That's going to feel completely different, even though it's almost the same dimensions and they just got this one radius wrong. I mean, maybe that's just my own ego and opinion, but, um, I'm basing that off of all my experience through building these skis and trying many things and, and, you know, having failures, having successes, what really works, what kind of worked, what, and, and you see, you kind of fine tune that, um, through those experiences. But, uh, you know, I think that's where these small brands that are very, they're specialized and they're, they're creating exactly what they want because they believe in it and because they've put this effort into it instead of what's popular right now, let's build that and we need to build 10,000 of them and it needs to be watered down to the easiest level and it needs to sell and it needs to have this image on it because that's what's hot right now. <laughs> so yeah. it's a different a different level of, Uh, design intent, let's say. And the people, the people driving the design are the end users. That's the difference. They didn't, we didn't go to school. We didn't, you know, we've learned it all through necessity and for the purpose of improving what we do and and the tools we have to use.
1: We've talked about how, you know, you have said that your intention at least is that The Raven, the Hoji, and the Renegade would all, and and please correct me if if I've misunderstood you, but that the, the Raven, Hoji, and Renegade would all bear a strong family resemblance in terms of their performance. And now the question is just, you know, do you want something really wide, designed for really deep conditions? Do you want something that is light and you can go on a long tour on? Or do you want more of an everyday? ride um which is kind of how we're talking about the hoji is that accurate you the intention is that those three skis ought to share a strong family resemblance in terms of their performance just pick your width
0: yeah uh to a certain extent like i would say the main thing is the renegade is still that's like my those are my work boots you know like i need that ski to go out i, I skied to primarily all season because we had a good season, but for filming, I need that tool, high speed stability. It's, it's not for everyone. It's, it's like a, it's a sports car, you know, it's not going to be a fun grocery getter. You're going to mm-hmm. be stalling. It's trying to shift. Cause you don't know how it's not like a, an easy, it was never meant to be for everyone. It's meant to reach those who want to ski aggressively, have their skill set dialed and they want to they want to get that kind of performance and then from there yes the hoji if you like that you'll you should also like the hoji but it's going to be more forgiving it's a bit softer it's got a bit more side cut it's more playful and it's meant to be yeah take less effort and precision to ski it and have a lot of fun and then of course the raven is kind of taking that and now we're going for a big march and you want to get somewhere or do many laps and have stability and feel confident on your light equipment to ski the way you like to ski. So they are, yeah, it's a, it's a family feeling, but they do, it's not just the width, I would say. It's, it's kind of, there's a bit more to it than that, but generally I, I want them to have that. That's my goal is to, if you like one, chances are the others will, Maybe the renegade's too much if if the ho- but maybe then you're you're going you're getting into ski touring you should be able to confidently decide to to purchase the raven and and get on that and and it should provide you a similar experience.
1: Yep. But the mm-hmm. renegade is still the most game on ski of the three.
0: Yeah, that's and it's just basically the width, you know. Like you're never. I think it would be foolish. For a company like Forefront, who's a very specific and niche brand, like they're not going to compete against the, the Rossignols and Solomons producing a wide ski that's soft, super soft and forgiving. I mean, there are niche ski companies doing that, and I think that's great too. But even those big companies, they struggle with a ski. Anything over 120 width is like yeah. people just scratching their head. And outside of North America, Japan, and maybe a few people in in the Scandinavian countries, like in Europe, that's, that's a very extreme still for them to accept that as like a ski is, is, is very tricky. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, and you are, you just said you, you are spending the most like this past season, you spent the most of your days on the Renegade.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that was, definitely the result of a very good snow year yeah with i mean we're very fortunate up here in canada the coast mountains the interior i believe a lot of the states had had quite a good winter as well and Mm -hmm. for me it, it all comes down to the flotation and the just that efficiency of of cruising through snow and not plowing through it so if if there is fresh snow i'm going to go generally with the the wider the ski that i i feel will provide me the most flotation because i like to go fast (laughs) (laughs) and
1: where are you mounting if you if you know you get a brand new pair of renegades where are you mounting yours
0: mine and yeah this is this i could talk about this for a while um and it's been a uh a struggle for me over the years because i actually with these skis the way they're designed the series of them with this kind of fully rockered and symmetrical length tip and tail um the whole idea is to to get rid of like a, a huge wide tip in front of you and and through a bit of momentum gain flotation and control right underneath you so you can have a, a much more neutral stance yep. um <clears throat> and a lot of people the first time they try these skis they they just can't stop face because they're so used to having this big tip in front of them and pushing forward into the powder and for me as soon as I kind of left that style of skiing it just opened up this possibility to be like light and nimble on the center of the ski and in a very neutral stance where because in in snow and in, in powder snow and whatever you're whatever the conditions you're experiencing, it's constantly changing. It's not a constant. So if if your weight is in one direction, if you're leaning forward and suddenly you hit something, you're going forward. If you're leaning Mm -hmm. back, you hit something, you're going back. So I equate it to like the the gym, high school gym ready position, you know? Like I just want to be my weight stacked right over the center of my feet and just in this position that allows me to make adjustments from micro adjustments to severe adjustments when something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, how that reflects on the mounting position is interesting because for powder ski, they a powder-specific ski, let's say the Renegade, it's mounted. The recommended mounting position is generally, you know, up to 10 centimeters, well, maybe not, let's say five to eight centimeters more forward than a comparable yep. kind of mainstream market ski. Um, and that's where I see these little subtle differences where I'm like, there there's companies that have, have not traced the Renegade, but have done a pretty close job of replicating it. And then you see the mounting position and it's like, you've just ruined this ski hmm. <laughs> for me anyway. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mount the Renegades. I have a very, a, quite a small foot. I have a size 25, five ski boot, which is usually about a, between a 284 and 290 millimeter sole, and I go at about five and a half centimeters back from the true center of the ski. Mm-hmm. And that puts mm-hmm. the middle of my foot just slightly back from like the true waist of the ski. Yeah. Um and I, I like my design intent with these skis was to have that symmetrically length uh tip and tail where they're both around 30 uh centimeters, and that that is the reverse shape of the tip and the tail uh, combined with the upturn, the amount of upturn in the tip and the tail? And that's a, for a ski to have that long of a tail of reverse shape and reverse, like a rocker, let's say, upturn, um, is kind of uncommon in the mainstream. And that's why a lot of these mounting positions are further back. But this forward of mounting position for taller skiers with larger feet uh, je- can be too far forward. So we've always, you know, I've I've put instructions that this is kind of the sweet spot in mounting, and I've sent out so many emails to friends or people contacting me, like, hey, where do you mount this? What do you think? And I'm always like, what's your boot size? How high? How tall are you? How much do you weigh? What do you? What are you coming from? And, yeah, there is a range of about three centimeters behind where I like to mount it that, uh, you know, taller skiers, people with bigger feet, people who are a bit more on the traditional side of things, they they will benefit from mounting it a bit further back. So I've 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 been fighting a little bit for like the old school boot toe mount because mm-hmm. it, it kind of translates to that. Like if if everyone knew, OK, this is where the boot toe is, and then the taller they are and the bigger their feet, the, the center boot center actually goes back perfectly almost, you know, general it's, it's such a generalization because I mean, the better a skier is, the, the more they should be able to look at a ski and, and say, Hey, no, I'm going to like this a little bit forward or a little bit back just on based on, you know, their, their technique and their ability and, and what they like their preference. Cause there is no ultimate correctness. That's the, mm-hmm that's the truth. When it comes to mounting, yeah. <laughs> obviously there's extremes that, that aren't going to play well with how the ski was designed, but there is, I am a strong believer. There is a, a certain area on the ski in a reasonable area that, that is relevant for different people in different sizes and styles. Yeah.
1: I mean, <laughs> and then I think a whole nother complicating variable here is then flex pattern, right? Is because uh, for me at least shovels that have some skis we get on there there is a big hinge point between mm-hmm. like the tip of the ski and the forebody of the ski and that I feel like can have a radical impact on how how f- how far forward I'm willing to be on a ski because if if you're putting me on the edge of a ski if I have a more forward mount, And it feels like I'm on sort of the very end of a stiff platform that is about to like very abruptly transition to soft. Sometimes I feel like I need to back up just to get myself on that stiff portion of the flex pattern. Um, You know, because if I'm blowing up into variable conditions or terrain, sometimes it'll feel like that shovel is just folding up. Um, (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah you're 100 percent correct like I've had those experiences even way back skiing on some of the early Rossignol stuff and mm-hmm. I I absolutely hate it and I agree with you like the worst thing is a ski that doesn't have a consistent flex especially mm-hmm. well it, it works both ways front and back but the four like yeah the, the front of the ski is what's giving you the information of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when that folds on you, it's, it's devastating. And it's unfortunate if that's the ski you're producing and you have to mount it further back because suddenly now you're, you're going to constantly want to be like feeling like you need to catch up to the ski. Mm -hmm. But when you get there, it folds. So those are like the absolute worst skis for powder and variable skiing in my, in Mm -hmm. from my experience. I I really don't like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something with especially the skis like the Raven and, and the Renegade we've we've spent a long time you know playing e- the the core has been revised numerous times like the, the the core profile and the materials and one of the things that that we really were proud of or is that we were running like the core right to the ends you know the the tip and tail segments of the ski. The fill is like a horseshoe, and the tail block on the end. But the the actual core, of the wood of the ski, goes within, let's say, I believe it's about two centimeters from the ends of the ski. And a lot of skis out there are made where as soon as the the curvature of the tip really becomes abrupt, the core is cut off almost on a straight line and, and plastic material is utilized to achieve that, that radius. Um, and that can contribute drastically to that kind of folding sensation that you're talking about.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. So last question on this, we'll, we'll move on. But so you said you are mounting your own renegades at like minus 5.5. And is that, and and does that stay consistent? And we're, again, we're only talking about you and everybody listening, listening to this is not you, (laughs) but, um, and so there might be reasons to back up on the ski, but would you be going the same roughly minus 5.5 on the Hoji and the Raven as well?
0: Yeah, I, uh i run the hoji exactly the same and on the raven i have moved back just half a centimeter Hmm. just because it is a little bit shorter i mean that's something it's there's so many variables the overall length and how much just looking down like if you're i i spend all my time skiing on 186 and the 187 Hmm. and then the, the the raven's a few centimeters shorter so even if it's just a subconscious thing like that half centimeter, we're talking nothing, but I I feel like, Oh yeah, that's the, the tip isn't looking too short. And maybe that's like what I was referring to earlier. Like if you are an experienced skier, like you can stand on a ski and look down and almost instantly be kind of recognizing like, "Woo, this looks pretty short. Yep. the amount of ski in front of me or this looks incredibly long yep. <laughs> and that's just like your body awareness and your experience muscle memory and like how you perceive the act of skiing yeah. <laughs> which is interesting uh interesting to think about for sure hmm. but uh yeah i mount them pretty consistently and i usually you know like i say okay guys with the with the 26.5 you know it's they can they can go back, you know, minus six, minus six point five. Guys with twenty seven, minus six, six point five, minus seven, and you know, you start getting into the really bigger sizes. It's kind of the minus eight, mm-hmm. and and even people with smaller feet that are more they're they're more traditionally based with that they want to be pushing forward on the ski and they want a bit more tip. They, I've had a lot of people who like who have commented to me that they prefer they they mounted it and then they moved it back like a centimeter and a half and they they preferred it there so um i mean it it all just comes down to your personal preference at the end yeah which it's it's kind of a shame with skis and bindings and how they're mounted the interface is just so rigid yeah um but one thing to be said about especially the, the skis that have been coming from the white room is we put a lot of effort into binding retention okay. and the areas underfoot. And like at the beginning, that's why we were u- using maple as like such a strong wood. And you could like hand torque a, a binding screw into the maple and try and strip it. And I've seen, I've personally like snapped the head off the screwdriver, like sheared the, hmm. the Phillips teeth off or sheared the bolt, the, 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 the screw head, Sorry. Um, and then, so from there we moved, okay, we want to lighten it up. This is too crazy stiff. It's hard to ski. And so then we went with strips of maple throughout the whole center of the ski tip to tail. And the final revision that we're at now is, is utilizing a maple insert kind of these pucks, these rectangular shaped four millimeter thick, um, inserts of maple. So, I mean, the hope is, you're never going to strip that that ski when you're mounting it or if you move it and and re-drill it or put different bindings on it, you want to go touring the goal is to have some durability where you're not just a lot of this l- lightweight stuff you're just screwing through a little piece of plastic into balsa wood and good luck you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's some thought has gone into that so and it's hmm. not the end of the day if you have to remount your skis or our skis, let's say. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I have to um, I am I am acutely aware uh, that I have in a way reduced one of the best big mountain skiers of all time to sort of a ski engineer here. Um, and I'm, you know, I, uh, I am sure there's some people listening to this being like, dude, when the hell are you going to talk about skiing pillows and things like that? And, uh, and so I do actually want to ask about that. Um, y- you don't ski like a whole lot of other people out there. Uh, I think it would be fair to say, and you know, I, it also should be said that, I mean, truly like, I think some of your Uh, pillow segments are some of my all-time favorite ski segments. Um, And so it's interesting to sit here talking about ski design with someone who cares about design clearly, but also like there are few people on earth who are skiing pillows like you are and at the speed you are. Um, And I don't know what to do with that fact, but it is a fact. (laughs) (laughs)
0: well thank you (laughs) no but i think it it kind of goes hand in hand like uh i've said it over the years it's like the the ski design and my ski ability and technique they're kind of it's a it's a circle the better i've i've honed my skiing ability and technique the more i've you know i want out of these skis and then the better i'm able to to fine-tune the design of the skis the more it allows me to do and you know that's my joke with the renegade is it's like added a few years onto my career oh, <laughs> but uh but the pillows especially specifically it's i think it plays into the how my mind works uh, as a person like why i like this discussing ski design or working on ski designer equipment is i like dissecting things and understanding you know, thinking of why it works and how it can work and what are we doing here? And the pillows are just like the, the pinnacle of like micro featured terrain. It's never a very long pitch or anything, but you, the, the more you dissect it and really understand and, and the visualization of like, how am I going to be able to get through there? And, And, and like relating that to like all your experience as a skier And just visualizing like where the turn's going to be and memorizing that exact tree branch and like the precision of it and the speed it's just I love it so much and (laughs) it's been uh, I I feel very fortunate to have uh, kind of found that that side of skiing that aspect and I really like how it it really plays to the ski touring uh, side of the sport as well because there's no other way that you can analyze and dissect and spend the time in this terrain to really come up with these kind of creative visions of how you want to ski it. Because as a professional skier, you know, classically being super fortunate and going with a helicopter or snow cat or snowmobiles, all these mechanized ways of moving through the mountains to access terrain, you're just, you're going over it so quickly. It's hard to really take the time, um, and with ski touring you're forced in a way like you can only go so far in a day so you got to hopefully find an area that has the terrain you're looking for and then you just you dedicate a week or 10 days to that area and if you're fortunate with the conditions you can really you can really start analyzing and dissecting this terrain and, and skiing these kind of very <laughs> they're unique and i don't know it's just kind of a uh, It's the style I, I found myself doing. (laughs) Uh,
1: So, you know, first of all, like you've got, um, a new movie coming out, right?
0: Uh, that's, that's the goal. I mean, there's the project I I worked with matchstick productions again this year. So they're going to have their, their, uh, classic, another action packed Ski film with all the footage and all the athletes from this winter, which I think will be uh, has the potential to be quite a spectacular movie because it was such a good season, and they've kind of they branched out from their their formula last year with mixed results, but I think ultimately achieved uh, some recognition outside of the ski industry um but yeah now they're kind of stepping back in and putting scott gaffney who's you know one of the biggest legends i think in our sport as far as just the uh, documenting what's going on and being a spectacular skier himself and having great relationships with you know some of the most legendary uh athletes and personnel of of the of the sport um he's he's pretty much uh, overseeing all the editing and and has uh, from what I understand pretty much full control so there's going to be a lot of good humor and I mean the teaser was just a taste of that and uh, I think it'll speak to their kind of their following and their their fan and just like yeah you know skiing is a fun thing we do it for fun and uh the more you kind of stray from that the harder it is to like (laughs) express yourself like really I think the 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 fun side of it always should be in in part of the focus of what's going on because ultimately people do it to have fun.
1: Well, and I guess so. And I haven't I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen the film. I I presume that your segment is going to be mostly BC, all BC.
0: Yeah, no, I, uh, I took full advantage. Like, uh, really this season is the first season I've successfully, uh, filmed out of Whistler in many years, just because, you know, we've had a few lean years and not a lot of, we've had great, some good seasons, especially in the Alpine and we filmed, you know, in the spring up there, but we haven't had a good, uh, pillow season in, in a number of years. And this was this was the year. Like there was ten foot snowbanks right outside my window here. And <laughs> stayed stayed cold, didn't rain, and so we took. Uh, I kind of uh, re fell in love with where I live because it was suddenly all these things that I had been almost forgotten about because it had been a few years and I've been you know, focused on going to the interior of British Columbia, where the powder window is, is kind of, you know, it's one of the best places in the world. That's why there's a whole heli ski, cat ski, backcountry, hut operations, like industry is based out of there because of that kind of powder window is, uh, the snow stays good for the longest amount of time. It cannot snow for a week or two weeks and you're still able to find powder snow in this in in the trees at lower elevations just because of the the climate there whereas the coast you know it it's a it's quite a bit more fickle you'll get more snow but with the temperatures rising or, or a, a bit more wind you just don't you typically have the same the same opportunity the length of window of, of good snow but yeah fortunately this year that wasn't the case and we i feel like we took full advantage of it hmm.
1: We did talk to um, Sage Catterbergalosa about. Um, he really went in depth about skiing big lines and spines, and, you know, you've spent some time in, in that kind of terrain too. And I guess I'm I'm curious. You know, we just talked about pillows, and it and it. You know, I I don't know. I guess I'm curious to ask something like there's a different set of concerns and um, uh, tricks to skiing pillows well versus skiing, you know, big, big spines um, and big lines, you know, in Alaska or something. Do you tend to think of those two things as kind of radically different disciplines or do you view them as having more overlap, you know, more, more similar than different?
0: Uh. No, there there are a lot of similarities, but the, it is such a different uh, venue. Yeah, and I mean, when you start getting into the alpine, I this year I, I coined myself as a, I'm a subalpine skier. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I I love I I mean Sage is like a legend. His ability to to tackle spines and throw tricks and like he's opened up a whole new side of the sport and just his his personality. Like I, he's one of the guys that I've known you know, casually over the years. And I've never really got to, to go skiing with him. And I I absolutely love watching his segments and his style. And I think he's a great role model for the sport. Um, and I can really appreciate his ability. And I mean, I wish, I wish I could, uh, I, I definitely highly enjoy skiing spines and, and getting into the Alpine and skiing bigger lines. And I just feel like I haven't, I may, I'm maybe not up to par with those guys. I haven't put in the time. It's, it's Mm -hmm. the same with pillows. It's, uh, you really gotta be, you know, going and going on basically heli trips or camping trips and heli trips really are the ultimate way because it's the only way you can, can gain that experience and get on, you know, a number of different options in a short amount of time and really figure it out. Um, but the, the similarities are dissecting, the terrain and landmarking and memorization and i mean the the thing that uh, really puts the spines in its own category is is really the the slough yep you know you're you're putting yourself on such big features and you take the avalanches right out of it like actual slab avalanches but just your slough management and adding that whole other element of like you have to know exactly where you're going to be able to ski it fast and confidently. And now suddenly you can't stop, you know, like those, those big lines, it's, I would compare, I'm not a surfer, but I would compare it to like dropping into a huge wave. Like there's no like, Hey, hold up, hold on a second. Oh, I'm, I needed to be 10 feet over there. Like, Oh, suddenly the snow's a bit crusty. Like it's uh it's an art form and, and just slough management and and reading the terrain and knowing where you have to be and how long you have to get there and how long you can stay there before you have to go somewhere else. Like it's uh, it's an incredible skill level and skill set. And uh, I mean, I I've had my fair share and I really enjoy it. But I I definitely haven't spent uh, as much time in that venue as yes. as some of those other guys, such as Sage. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Sage completely,
1: you know, underscores everything you just said. I mean, he really is just like, it's getting reps. And he's like, if you aren't getting reps, you cannot be good at this. And then of course he was a bit self deprecating. Cause he's like, man, I've just, I've just been fortunate. I've been there a lot. Yeah. It's like, well, okay, maybe that's not quite true, but, but like, you know, he, he underscored that like, yeah, put the time in. And which means you have to have access to helicopters, uh, regularly. And um, so it's actually fun. I think hearing him talk about this and hearing you talk about pillows and how they are more accessible, um, but how it pretty much means you're touring for them. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, I would also say though, and I think that's a great analogy to bring up, you know, spines to like the analogy of, of um, big wave surfing. But I mean, man, those pillow lines in your segments don't look like once you get started, you have tons of opportunities. <laughs> like, eh, I'm not, I'm not quite yeah. feeling this. I'm just going to sort of, you know, shut it down right here. I mean, it, the this, at least the lines that, that, you know, we've seen in some of your segments, those look awfully committing in their own right.
0: Oh yeah. No, it, it's uh, you're, you're a hundred percent correct there. Like it is in pillows. There is the same, It's at a different degree and it's just maybe not, it's just not the same size and scope. But when you actually get into those super steep, fast lines, um, it's, it's a similar sensation of like dropping in. It's like, you're, you're in it now. And like, you better have, you better have it completely dialed and be able to react to something you might not have known and have your exit strategies. And like, you're fully committed and that's part of the rush that's part of like the challenge and skiing in a situation where you can't stop is in that's kind of like the pinnacle of of the the modern free ride skiing like skill set i i would say yeah um and yeah it's it's true it it is it is uh a factor in the the bigger, the more technical pillow lines for sure. It's not as as simple as I made it sound. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I don't know. I the, I guess I think I just I really fell in love with the the ski touring and the simplicity and just waking up and going skiing. And yes, it's the same as same the same thing can be said uh, that goes along with sage like. I've been forged, super fortunate to go to these huts for 10 year, 10 plus years and hone my skills and ski tour and analyze the terrain and come back to the same terrain. And, and like, not everyone, not every skier has that, you know, maybe that's once in their lifetime that they can save up and, and go to the huts and, and enter this kind of train that, that being said you can still ski tour to a lot of amazing pillow lines or spines or whatever but it's that frequency yeah. and that experience and the exposure and building your your skill set and really that that's the art of it to me is like looking at something and visualizing how how it's going to be and how you can do it and and that only comes from previous experience of doing similar things so (laughs) and that's kind of probably why uh as far as like skiing lines and sort of the big big mountain skiing or free riding you know there is some longevity in that aspect of the sport because yeah there are there are always like the next sean pettit who comes in and just has this uncanny ability kai these guys who grew up skiing in awesome terrain but they step into the big the big boy pants world and they just throw down and they're it's like they're veterans and it mm. might be, you know, that the trip I actually talked about, uh, testing the very first renegade prototypes yeah. that I built, uh, was with Sean Pettit, his first trip to Haynes. And, you know, it was just spectacular to watch how that young teenager just stepped into this terrain and, and started skiing it. Like he'd been there for 20 years. Wow. Oh. Um, But yeah, there is something to be said about about an experience, gained experience that allows you to to ski these or to ski this style of terrain and and tackle these kind of fully committed lines.
1: That's it for part one of my conversation with Eric Hurlifson, and we'll be publishing part two later this week. Till then, check out what we're up to at blisterreview.com and check out the show notes to this podcast episode to see some of our favorite ski segments of Eric's. As always, thanks to our strikingly handsome and increasingly ambitious audio engineer, Justin Bob. And don't forget to become a Blister member and make sure you get your copy of our 1718 Winter Buyer's Guide. And we will then talk to you later this week.